extra time there. We're going to jump right in uh, because I want you to, um, I want to be able to cover all the things that I want to, that I want to get at, um, I want to, uh, I want to cover this morning. Um, I want to start off by saying, uh, in, in introdu- introducing this, this passage in this sermon, is, is discipleship, it, for those who uh, are a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and you are following in discipleship of Jesus Christ, you will come to realize that discipleship is hard. Um, and di- discipleship is long, and it's on a, a, very, uh, a very narrow road that it is. You begin to realize how narrow that road uh, really is. And, and I think that this is what Jesus is going to be getting at this morning when he uh, addresses his disciples um, on the area of discipleship and what reality really looks like. And I'm going to talk to you uh, about that in, in just a, a few moments on, on what Jesus is saying about reality. But let's look, go ahead and look to Luke chapter 6, and let's start reading uh, at verse 17. Verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and with a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were, were cured. And all the crowd sought to, to touch him For power came out from him and healed them all. Verse 20. And then he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you you when people hate you, And when they exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So, or for so, their fathers did to the prophets. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. To God be the glory for His Word this morning. So Luke is setting up for us a a situation that takes place, I believe, right after uh, Jesus calls his apostles, the twelve, which we talked about last week. And they, they come out to, to a, a level ground. And, and all around him was his, his apostles, his disciples, and then a multitude of people. And we have from, from different locations, different regions, Tyre and Sidon, possibly Gentile people are now starting to hear about the authority of the teaching of Jesus and his authority over death, his authority over uh, 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 evil spirits and uh, diseases and such. And so they all gathered around Jesus. There were groups of people from not just Galilee now, or Nazareth, or Capernaum, but now gathering from all around uh, the, the region. And I love what it says there in verse 19. We're not going to talk about it too much, but look at verse 19. It says, And the crowd sought to touch him. They wanted to touch Jesus and because the power was coming out of him uh, to heal them. So there's the context that sets up for us this, 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 in a sense, this sermon outline that we get in verses 20 through 26. So in the rest of chapter 6 in Luke is going to be the rest of this, this sermon. And it sounds very reminiscent to the, to the Sermon on the Mount that we get in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Three chapters long. Wonderful sermon. Read it. But we get in Luke chapter 6 more like a condensed version and some differences than the Sermon on the Mount. And so some people have referred to it as the Sermon on the Plain because he came out on a level ground. And I think what we, what we see is we see Jesus leveling 
out to his boys what discipleship is. He's telling them, this is how it's going to be, guys. And so, verse 20, he's addressing his disciples. So, um, important note to take, that he is, he's given these, in a sense, this, this teaching to his people, to the guys that he is called to follow him, to the guys that he is called to eventually send out. And he lifted his eyes upon them, and he spoke to them. This is very important for us to understand. Now, everyone else that was there, they were welcome to listen. But the implication, what implies for us in the Scripture, is that this sermon is for the church. The Sermon on the Mount is for the church. It is not ethical teaching that you can apply just to the world so everybody can be good. If anything, it proves that the world is bad. So when we read it, when we read these passages, 20 through 26, I hope you were, in a sense, shocked by how crazy Jesus sounds. Look at that. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the weeping. Blessed are the suffering. Blessed are the rejected and hated. Blessed. And woe to the rich. Woe to the full. Woe to the, to the laughing. And woe to the popular. Crazy. I mean, completely blows out of the water any kind of normal assumption that we may have about this life. In fact, and you see it in the question, it, it completely turns upside down everything, doesn't it? Jesus sounds like a lunatic here. Because nobody in their right mind thinks that you are blessed if you are poor. Nobody thinks that you are blessed if you are starving. Nobody thinks that you are blessed when you are at the hospital dying and weeping, crying out for life. And woe, cursed to the rich, to the full, to the laughing, to the popular. I mean, think about how every success story you have ever heard in America goes. It always starts out from poverty to wealth. And Jesus is saying, nope, the other way. It's the other way. Our normal assumptions about life are turned upside down. It's turned upside down. That everything that we need to know, one thing we need to understand about these verses, the blessings and the woes, here's another big thing that we understand about these verses, these blessings and the woes, Jesus is not praying these. He's not hoping these, right? He's not wishing these upon us, right? He's not, this isn't the high priestly prayer. He's not praying. He's hoping that we will embrace these things. What he is doing is he is letting his disciples in and letting us in to the reality of which life really is. Not that what he hopes it will be. And there's a big difference. Blessed are the poor. The hungry will be filled. The weeping will laugh. The rejected will rejoice. And this is how things are. And he's kind of leveling with these guys. This is how it's going to be. You're going to follow me? This is how it is. This is the reality of life. And so as we look at each one of these, these blessings and these woes, one of the questions that I want you to be asking yourself, and I'm going to come back to the end and I'm going to ask this question again, is I want you to ask your question to yourself, where am I? Where am I? What, what category would I put myself in? Or maybe it's I'm somewhere in the middle. Am I on the, the blessed side or I am in the, the, the woe side? So let's look at the first one. Poor versus the rich. Verse 20. Look back at verse 20. He lifted his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 24. Look at the contrast, the contrasting verse. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now here's the first thing we need to understand about this passage and what Jesus is not saying. 
Jesus is not telling us that God bases our salvation on our financial status. He doesn't look into our bank accounts and our, in our wallets and say, oh, you got too much, you're not saved anymore, you've gone past the threshold, or because you have nothing, oh, now you're saved. He, he doesn't do that. He's not, he's not basing our salvation based upon uh, how much we have in our bank accounts. So the bros who has no money in your account doesn't mean you're a believer because of the money in your account or the lack thereof or vice versa. So there's something more going on here. There's something very deep that is going on here. And what helps us understand what's, what's happening here, it comes from Matthew chapter 5. So we can't just look at this text and, and just ask ourselves, well, what do we think what's happening? So that, that kind of goes against the first rule of interpretation. We have to look to the scriptures. We have to look to see what Jesus is saying. Well, there's, a, there's a, the same verse, in a sense, almost in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, he says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's this, there's this qualifier that's put there. Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So what are the poor in spirit? Well, we know it's not people who are just poor, have no money. It goes beyond the wallet. And it goes into our heart, right? Poor in spirit. So it goes, it goes beyond the wallet and into our heart. So what does it mean? Poor in spirit means to be blessed, to be favored, to be graced, to be, to be happy. Happy is the one... Happy is the one who understands at the deepest levels of their heart that they are spiritually bankrupt and impoverished and has nothing that they can give God. That's what we heard about this morning. This is what, this is what Martin Luther came to understand, that all of these things that he thought was pouring into this bank account to gain riches of God, but then over here he was living miserable and in fear and in anguish thinking that if he doesn't get everything particular right, God was going to strike him dead. And the poor in spirit is the one who says, I am bankrupt. I am impoverished and there's nothing that I can give to God. There's no favor that I can gain before God. There's no right standing. There's no right approval that I can gain to God that will earn or justify my reconciliation before Him. This is what it means to be poor before the Lord. We sing the song. We sang it last week. Rock of Ages, verse 3. Not in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for just helpless Look to thee for grace, foul to the fountain, fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is a hard verse to sing if you don't understand that you are blessed of the poor. You see, it's no matter how many religious activities, there's no moral uprightness. There's, there's, there's no way in all the ways and attempts that we've tried to clean ourselves and all the ways that we've tried to clean our life, and we've, you've lived your life to stay clean. I think I scared her. So it doesn't matter how many religious activities we have, moral uprightness, or how clean you've lived your life. It is blessed is the poor in spirit because God still owes me nothing. You are blessed when you believe this. You see, blessed are the poor in spirit, are the, are the ones who, are, who helplessly stand before the Lord and honestly can just kind of say, God, I can't figure these things out. I'm helpless before you. I can't figure out my own righteousness. I can't live in a, in a way on my own to earn my justification. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying in, when he was speaking in Nazareth when he was speaking to his hometown, and he quoted Isaiah 61. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And this is what he's talking about, that the, that the poor in spirit cannot remove, their own, remove their, own, their own scales, and they can't move their scale in the right direction before the Lord to earn their own place and their own righteousness. The, the blessed is the person who understands that. I cannot manipulate the scale, no matter how hard I try. And I'm poor and I'm impoverished before the Lord. It's the one who understands this deeply. Blessed are the poor 
And here's the good news. Here's what is amazing. The good news. The the good news to the poor. This is what he says here. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now we've talked about the kingdom of God just a little bit, but I just want to give you just a moment of what that means again. What he is saying to the poor, those who understand their spiritual poverty and their bankruptness before the Lord, here's what this means. It means when you understand this, when you understand this idea of your own spiritual poverty, then, then it's like the king of the universe, the king of the universe with all of his power and with all of his kingdom authority is now for you. It's now turned toward you. But woe. But woe to the rich. But woe to the rich who do not see their poverty. To those who do not see their need. Who think that they can discipline themselves or cleanse their, themselves and live to a certain ways to get into heaven. Isn't this what we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks with the Pharisees? I mean, contrast what Jesus is saying, and this is why these guys were getting so angry at Jesus. And he's telling you, you think you're rich, but you, you get your reward now. But blessed are the poor. And so we're not talking just about money, are we? We're not talking about money here. Because there are poor, there, there are poor who can still be just as satisfied with their own envy and their own greed than rich can be with their own wealth. You see, the rich are, are the ones who, who cannot see their, their spiritual poverty. They can't see their, their desperate need for Christ and for grace. Because in reality, the rich are just like the poor in the physical life, aren't they? But they can't see it. And so many miss this kingdom blessing. So many miss this kingdom blessing of the rich. We see this in the rich young ruler, right? Who would not, would not let go of his things because he was receiving his reward. So that's the poor and the rich. Second one is the hungry versus the full. Look at verse 21. It says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. So we know he's not just talking about food here. Right? He's, not just, he's not just talking about food. Our, our spiritual condition does not end in our stomachs, does it? Our spiritual conditions are not, do not end in our stomachs, but they begin in our heart. And they certainly can have an effect in our stomach. But they begin in our heart. And once again, Matthew gives us a help here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. The very first verse I've ever, I ever memorized. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So our text is progressing for us a little bit, isn't it? Right? First, blessed are the poor. Those who see and understand their complete inability to justify themselves, their poverty, their spiritual bankruptness before the Lord, their deep sin, that they can't figure these things out on their own. And second, the hungry are those who, are, who, who know their poverty They understand this this poverty and that poverty creates in them a hunger. A sure sign of poverty in this world is what? The hungry. They're hungry. A A sure sign of spiritual poverty is hunger. A hunger for righteousness. A hunger for for to be to be forgiven and to be reconciled before the Lord. And if you hungered for those things, if you hunger for forgiveness, if you hunger for reconciliation and righteousness, then your hunger will lead you to pursue the Lord. I want to tell you that this is not a one-time deal. 
A hungering for righteousness is not just a, I'm going to pray a prayer moment. But a hungering for righteousness is one thing that, that continues throughout our whole lives. It doesn't end at one point. And this is where it's so hard to understand the, the real struggle of discipleship. It's a, because it's like a hunger. It's a desire that almost seems sometimes it's hard to fulfill. It seems so hard to, to, uh, to satisfy. If you're like me, if you were like me, you were brought up in a, a version of Christianity um, that, that taught, not in, I don't think necessarily intentionally, but through bad theology. It just grew out of it. Um, a version of Christianity that once you become a Christian, then you, in a sense, should never struggle again. I grew up in that, that kind of Christianity. That you, you get, once you get saved, then you're good. You have the Holy Spirit, and you should never sin again. You should never struggle. All your temptations will diminish. All your addictions will be gone. And, and, and in a sense, there was, there was cre- uh, created generations of people then, in, in consequence to that, uh, generations of people who either ran from the church or they learned how to really hide themselves well. That, that's how I existed. I learned to hide myself very well. And, and the problem is, is, this is this idea of Christianity is just not true. It's not true in the scriptures. It's not true in reality. Because when, when, when I became a Christian, my sin did not stop. In fact, it didn't stop at all. I had, I had years of sin and selfishness and temptation. Years of poverty. Poverty that I knew. Poverty that, that, uh, that heaped years of, of guilt and shame. That would take years to overcome. Years to overcome. Years of hungering for righteousness to overcome that poverty. You know, everybody loves a good conversion story, right? That's what we get. We get good conversion stories. And we, we've heard some amazing ones. And praise God for those amazing stories of His grace. But you see, nobody likes to talk about the next six to ten years after that, do they? Nobody likes to talk about maybe the decades later or maybe all the way onto their deathbed. Maybe this is in why we've seen in Baptist life there's kind of this third category of Christian called rededication. We've created that because of this idea. We think I shouldn't, I shouldn't do these things. I shouldn't be these things. And there's a, there's, there's a reality of that. We've been given the Holy Spirit, but we've hidden ourselves so well, we haven't dealt with these. We haven't hungered for a righteousness to overcome these things. And so we get rededicated and we get rebaptized or whatever we call it in hopes that maybe this time Christianity will stick. But you know what happens. Brothers, sisters, you've been around, you've seen it. Brothers or sisters, our sanctification, our progressive sanctification, it is flat-out agonizing. It is flat-out agonizing, tediously slow. It is. It's, it is slow, and it's painful. I, I picked this up from uh, Matt Chandler, and, and he said this. He said, he said, what ends up happening in an information age is that we learn truths quicker than we can apply them. Okay, so we learn truths. We learn truths every week on Sundays. And those who come on Wednesdays, you, you learn truths on, on these times. Or maybe during the week, you learn truths in Scripture. And we learn them so fast that we're not actually able to apply them at the same pace. And so we, he, said, he continues, he said, And so we, we never want to then come clean about what is actually coming or actually happening in our hearts. We don't want to come clean about these things. He goes on to say, it's because we would rather be a hypocrite to ourselves in our hearts and hiding than to be seen by others as one. So here's the thing you need to hear me say about Christianity and also about the church. Brothers and sisters, it is okay to hunger for righteousness. It is okay to be before the Lord, hunger and needing for righteousness. It is okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. 
That's the progression into hungering for what? Righteousness. For they shall be what? Filled. If you are hunger, hungry, then take steps toward righteousness because there you will be satisfied. But here's the woe. The woe is, is we become, we've become so full of so many of other things that we don't even know that we're hungry. We become so full with, with so much of this, what the world has to offer, what we're fed every day, is we don't even realize that we're hungry. A, a illustration that I picked up from um, a guy you, you guys, you care nothing about, but I'll, I'll read his illustration. He said this, he says, a duck was flying, so this is not just a story for my kids, okay? It's about a duck. Can we handle that? All right. A duck was flying with his flock in the springtime northward across Europe. Right? So ducks fly north. During the flight, he came down, can I do that? Came down in a Danish barnyard where there were tame ducks. He enjoyed some of their corn. He stayed for an hour and then for a day and then for a week, and weeks turn into months. And finally, because he relished the, the good fare of food and the safety at the barnyard and the shelter, he stayed there all summer. But one autumn day, when the flock of wild ducks were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyards. And, and he, could, he could hear the, his, his mates cry out their quacks. And then at that moment, he was, his heart was, was filled with this, this strange joy and this strange delight once again that he, he saw himself flapping his wings and rose in the air so that he could join his comrades that were in flight. But he found that his good fare had made him so soft and so happy that he could rise no higher than the eve of the barn. So he dropped back down into the barnyard and said to himself, oh well, my, my life is safe here and the food is good. Since then, every spring and autumn, when he heard the wild ducks calling, his eyes would gleam for a moment and he would begin to flap his wings but finally the day came when the wild ducks flew over him. They uttered their cry, but he paid no attention. He couldn't hear them anymore. Woe to those who are full. Woe to those who are full, who are full of the things of this, this world. One of the reasons why we don't hunger, and one of the reasons why we are so full, is because we, we take very little time in our very fast-paced age, to just sit down and stop and, and take in some silence. And I, I think one of the, one of the, re, re, uh, one of the reasons why we, we don't take in that silence is because deep down we're kind of afraid what we might hear or see. And so we inoculate ourselves <laughs> with technology. YouTube. Netflix, Facebook, Twitter, television, and even books. And that inoculates us. That fills us up. It fills our hunger in such a way. Snapchat for maybe that side of the room. Instagram. And, and those things fill us up. They, they fill us up. We don't even realize the poverty and the hunger that's really there. And like I said, because we are, we're going to be unsettled by what we're going to find out. And guess what? Brothers and sisters, when, when it gets dark and you, you start to see and hear those things in your soul and you hear some of the things that maybe you have thought and that comes back up, guess what? It's going to be dark. Don't be surprised. It's going to be dark. But if we're ever going to be serious about our poverty and our hunger, then we have to slow down and deal with, with what is there. And when we deal with the dark and the disturbing, then that's going to create a hunger for a righteousness. And as we heard this morning, a righteousness that does not exist in ourselves, but is outside of ourselves, the righteousness of Christ. And what Jesus says is blessed are the hunger, 
the hungry, for they will be satisfied. But woe to those who think they have figured everything out and are full. Next one is weeping and laughing. Look at verse 21 again. And the second one there, part two of the, the verse. He says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now I think the progression's continuing here. We're, the progression's continuing. So blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, and now blessed are the weeping. So why are those who are poor and hungry weeping? Why would those who are poor and those who are hungry weep in this context? Well, when you understand your spiritual poverty and you understand that you are desperate and hungry for the righteousness of Christ, how does the Holy Spirit lead us to respond? In repentance. In in repentance that, that, yes, it does bring mourning. Those who mourn over their sin are overwhelmed by the darkness in them and we, we... we we find ourselves crawling to the righteousness of Christ and repenting and confessing our sin. These are those who who grieve and offend, who have offended God. This isn't a a worldly guilt that says, okay, I messed up, I know I I messed up, and I wish I would have made different decisions, and here's how I'm going to correct those decisions. No, that's, that's a worldly guilt. The godly grief says, I offended God on high. Godly grief says, I offended God on high and I must submit myself to Christ and look to His righteousness. And that's when repentance brings transformation. That's when this great paradox of mourning and weeping leads to laughing. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 6. It's funny how I'm going to Ecclesiastes. It says this, it says, For as crackling of the thorns under a pot, think fire, so the laughter of the fools, this is also vanity. And what he is telling us here in, this, in Ecclesiastes 7, 6 is this is a wisdom passage. He's telling us how foolish it is for someone to laugh when their life is on fire. This is, the, this is the woe. Woe to those who are laughing. Their life is on fire. When this, this person's, their, their whole life is coming down apart around them and they're so blind to it, they can't, they can't even feel the fire and yet it is, they are laughing all the way. They are laughing all the way. It doesn't take long for us to point in the culture people like this, do we? I've thought about actually saying some names to you guys, but once again, my quotes of culture sometimes are terrible. But think of any number of Hollywood stars, athletes. Pick one. Live in life of lavishness. May have the best things in this world. And on TV, their life is so glamorous. And, and they're always happy and laughing and satisfied. But Ecclesiastes says, whoa, how foolish it is for the person who's laughing as their life is on fire. But blessed is the man. But blessed is the man who cries out, who cries out and weeps for mercy. How about that? Next one. Persecuted versus the popular. So look at verse 22. Blessed are those, blessed are you, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day. That's crazy. And leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. I think I would rather be hated than excluded. If you've ever been excluded from something, you probably know what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, you sat Friday night, 
you know, you stay home, you don't know what your buddies are doing, you just stay home and you watch a show or whatever, hang out. You get up the next morning, you check Twitter, Instagram, social media, whatever it is, and you see a picture or you hear about what other people have done, your friends have gone out and done without you. And there's the pictures of all of them having a wonderful time, and you're just wondering, where was I? Or, or maybe you've been passed up for a job that you know should have been yours, and everybody knows it should have been yours. Being excluded hurts. It is painful. Being hated is painful. But at least we can deal with it because we know it. But there's a qualifier in verse 22 that lets us know who these people are. Those who are excluded, hated, reviled, spurned. Why? On the account of the Son of God. Sometimes, sometimes there are reasons that Christians, and I'm going to use that loosely, Christians are hated, they're excluded, they're reviled, and they're spurned. And not because of the Son of Man. Not because of, of, of Jesus. Truthfully, it's because they are graceless, arrogant jerks. Yes, arrogant, graceless jerks. You're not hated because of Jesus. You're hated because you are a jerk. And if you claim the martyr card, and you are an idiot before everybody then you deserved it. Right, we, I, I thought of the, uh, um, the Westboro Baptist morons, or a more, I think, example that we might understand, and I, actually I kind of thought this was a stereotype, but it's actually not, is the people who are Christians, and they go to restaurants and they leave no tip, or they'll leave a track and say, that's my tip. That's what I'm talking about. So Jesus is cluing us in here, on these verses here. And if we follow Jesus, if we are his disciples, then, then this is how the world is going to respond to us. They have to. We have an offensive gospel. It's, it's glorious. It's awesome. But it is offensive. And, and there are people in this world, in our, in our culture, who are just not indifferent about Christianity, but, but they absolutely hate it. And in fact, they hate everything about us. They hate that we're gathering this morning. They, they just wish we were gone, that we lived in Antarctica or something like that. They just wish we were gone or even dead. This week, I actually saw a one of the most vilest examples of this um, put out in the media. And Paul clues us into this situation in 2 Corinthians 2, you know, because we are the aroma of Christ. And to those who are being saved, that, that aroma is what? A sweet fragrance. But to those who are what? Those who are perishing, it's what? It smells like death. You ever drove by a, a rotten anything? stink. Unfortunately, along with that idea of what Paul's giving, cluing us into the spiritual reality of what's going on, unfortunately with that, uh, church history can even give us some insight of why there's such great hostility. And even today, like this, will, this will clue us into where we are today and why it's progressing so rampantly and so fast uh, before our uh, before our eyes. So, so back uh, in the, the late 18th century, in the early 20th century, there was this new type of Christian liberalism. And once again, very loose Christian, right? And, and a very, this very loose Christianity, this liberalism, sought to invade the church. It sought to invade the church in America, and it had a very difficult time getting the church. And so what they did was, they got some, what they did was they said, well, forget the church, Let's go to the institutions. Let's go to the seminaries. Let's go to the colleges. Let's go to the universities. So you have places like, um, like Harvard, like Yale, like Princeton, and a, and a number of others who in this so quick time just completely 
the pendulum just shifted completely other, other way to this new liberalism that said this. But basically, this is what it is. It's a, it's a let's do Christianity, but let's throw out the Bible. That was, their, that was the, what is called the new liberalism, and it wasn't new. Humans just kind of recycle things. That's what we're talking about, right? The Reformation. They threw out the Bible, and we brought it back. That's what reforming is, and this is what this new, this new liberalism did. And so what the church did, what the church did in, in, in America, and we, we kind of should be very thankful for this, that the church said, we're going to retreat. We're, we're, we're bailing out. We're pulling back. We're, we're going to separate ourselves. And, and so we, at that moment, guys, listen, this is so huge. At that moment is when the church pulled out of music. We still do music, but we pulled out of popular culture's music. We pulled out of arts. They pulled out of arts. You guys got to see some fantastic art. And what is it mostly about? Christ. And, and, and we pulled out of that. And so now we lost art. We lost education and politics and things like that. And we begin to create our own institutions. So, so whatever we want to say about, those, about what we call the fundamentalist church and the things that they did, and there's some things that were kind of dumb and, and stuff like that. But truthfully, if they didn't do what they did, we wouldn't be here today. The United States would be just like Europe and just like Canada. Think Canada. Think how close that is to us. We would be just like them empty cathedrals where there's nothing but complete secular humanistic religion. So and since that retreat, since that time, the church then has tried to then re-engage this world. Right? We tried to re-engage this world with, through missional work and mission work and things like that in cities and, and in culture. We're trying to re-engage these things. But the problem is, the problem is, is we're not the new kids on the block anymore. Like, we're not coming back with something new that they never heard of. They still have this, this tinted idea of what, uh, what Christianity is. And so that the church has, some, has, some really, has a really bad reputation because of these things, fair or unfair. And then the, the methods by which we've tried to re-engage culture has prolonged that reputation and given us this baggage. And no matter how Christianity then has been repackaged, there's still this, this stigma or this aroma that people are just going to hate. They're just going to hate it. So when we come back to our culture, we come back to our culture with the gospel, we, we got baggage. We didn't even know it was there. We, we have these things that, we, that need to be dealt with. Let me give you an example. I, I, I have a a friend who's an unbeliever, and the conversations that I've had with them is they, they grew, all I know is they grew up in a, with, in, with the experience of, of, of being a part of the Southern Baptist Church in some certain way, I don't know how, in the cultural South, not here, but in the cultural South, and that's all that I can get out of him. He will not tell me anymore. And, and because of his experience, the only thing I get is I will never go back to church. Why? We've got baggage. We, we, got, we got baggage. So, so when, we, when we are reviled, when we are hated, when we are excluded, who knows what's been said or done to the people around us? Who knows what kind of gospel they heard, right? Who knows what, what happened to them that made them get angry at you? But we still engage. And as Jesus said, we still rejoice. So it would be better for us if, we, if uh, the way that we respond to people when they hate us is we don't respond in anger back and, and, and pray and heap the, the, the fires of damnation upon them. Oh yeah, Jesus is going to get you. That's not maturity. That's not maturity. That's not, that's not blessed, right? The rejoicing. But instead, maybe we can be merciful in the fact that we don't know what happened to them. We don't know what was said. We don't know what kind of gospel was told to them. Maybe it's the get saved and you will be an okay person, and then they realize I'm still messed up. Jesus failed me. I want nothing to do with him. Maybe it's that kind of gospel they heard. And so we can pray for them then, right? We can pray then that the, the Lord then would give you grace to love them to love them where they are, and, and then to be able to walk with them. That's what I'm praying for this, this man that I'm getting to know, 
praying that I can walk in a way that I can be a tool in the hand of the Lord to this man. That unravels that, that hatred and that hardness that's in his heart. And doesn't that lead to a greater joy? Right? Even though sometimes we want to strangle him. <laughs> so this could, be, this could be one of the ways then that Jesus is saying to us, blessed are you that you are being transformed because you understand your poverty, you understand your hunger is in Christ, and you're, you're continuing walking in repentance. Blessed are you that are being transformed by the gospel in such a way where people see Jesus, and then they might hate you for it. Blessed. If that's you, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. But woe to you, but woe to you if when everyone loves you and speaks well of you. And the reason is, is because chances are you're lying to everyone, even to yourself. Everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be accepted. That's, our, that's, a, that's a universal thing for all of us. It's a universal idea. But if we are seeking to become universally popular by, by every single person, everyone has to like me, then in some way we have compromised. And we have lied to them and we've lied to ourselves. Because then we're projecting and we're showing something that we really are not. Here's the futility about popularity, by the way. The futility of, of popularity is this. If you are a popular person then most likely what the people love about you, or as the Bible says, speak well about you, is probably not really you. It's only what you present to them. So then, so then what is loved about you by these people that you're seeking their approval and their, your, their popularity and their following is what? It's a lie. It's a counterfeit. It's false. And this, this idea has left millions of people devastatingly lonely. Devastatingly lonely. Would you rather be rejected by 99% of everyone and loved by one, 1%, who know you and still love you, even though they know you? Or would you rather be loved by everyone in some way because you've achieved this, this look about you that would accomplish them liking you and 99% and then rejected by the one? And this is what Jesus is getting at. You know what's amazing about the gospel? And I, I can't stop saying this like almost every week, at least once a month. What's amazing about the gospel is that it continually tells me that, you know what, God knows everything about me. I am laid bare before the Lord every day, every moment of every day. He knows every hair on my head, every square inch. He's, he knows everything about me. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And as devastating as that could be to be that bare before someone, The gospel tells me that despite me, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. And he no longer sees sinful failure then, but he sees the works of his son, Christ. And that has brought me into a new, loving, kind, glorious relationship with the Lord that is built upon his steadfast love and mercy and grace. Because I, I daily can wake up reading the Word of God and despite my sin and my failures, I still can walk in the understanding and knowing that I am loved. And in that love, I am always accepted. And you know what's awesome, even better than that? Not, no, nothing's better than that. What, comes, what curtails that is then we get to do that and model that same idea in the church. That it is in the church where God created this, this idea where it's okay to not be okay and we're going to help one another to not stay there. Where we can be known. Are you known? 
So these are the things that are. This is what Jesus is saying. This, this, is, this is how it is. Not the other way. This is how it is. This is how everything works. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the weeping. Blessed are you when you're rejected. Woe to those who are rich. Woe to those who are full. Woe to those who are laughing and those who are popular. This is how it is. So I go back to our question. I told you I was going to ask this question again. So where are you? Blessed? Blessed with deep joy? Deep joy hungering for righteousness? Weeping in repentance, but yet still rejoicing and laughing in the glorious grace of Christ? Full of repentance? Or are you satisfied with your self-sufficient religion? With your moral uprightness and cleanliness? With your, I got it all together? Cursed. Where are you? And, and I understand that this isn't just an easy question. This isn't something you can be like, oop, oop, there I am. This is not an easy question. This is something that needs to be, needs to be dug down deep into our hearts to, to really determine where we are. And so if you are blessed, praise the Lord. Rejoice and leap for joy. Pray for others this morning. Be available for others this morning. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. You, you understand your great need for spirit, for great need and your spiritual poverty before the Lord, but you just don't feel this hunger and this righteousness. And then the, the compelling step then is to take the step this morning to slow down and stop. Seek the Lord. Plead the Lord for a deep hunger. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning again. Thank you for setting it right for us, telling us how it is, leveling with us, O oh Lord, showing us what it means to be really blessed. I pray, pray God, and in that blessing in these four ways, let us rejoice in it. Really see what it means to be full, full of your grace and your mercy. Father, help us now as we respond to the glory of your name.